Hi, George. Hello. Do I call you David or Dusty? Either. I don't care. People still do both, so you just choose. Dusty. <laughs> I always think of you as Dusty. You know, I believe, okay. I believe in the character that you've created. <laughs> it was very convincing. <laughs> We've known each other for nearly 30 years now, and you kindly recorded the theme tune for this podcast, The Boy Who Sat By The Window. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, I've spent the last year really kind of reacquainting myself with the art of songwriting. That's what I've been doing for the last year. I started working on this new way of writing a couple of years ago after watching this incredible documentary called The Creative Brain or The Creative Mind. I always get it wrong, but it's, it's on Netflix. And it's basically a lot of really smart people talking about creativity and how they create. And one of the first things all of them say is, Forget about trying to be original because this is going to give you such a headache. So I suppose I am guilty of being one of those people that says, oh, you know, I started that and I invented that and they're my eyebrows and all that stuff. It's what you do when you're 19. <laughs> but when you get older, you suddenly think, actually, this, well, I realized after watching this program that I was sort of getting in my own way. So you are the beneficiary of me looking for inspiration all the time to write things. I mean, when I did Taboo, the musical, what I loved about that was being given characters to write about. So I'm going to write a song about Philip Salon. I'm going to write a song about, you know, Lee Barry, whoever it may be, or about people. So it's one of the things I really enjoy. So once you came up with, I don't know how it all started, but you sent me, you talked about the book. I sent you the script for the book. Didn't yeah, I? which I said I'm not going to read because <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, your version of what you remember is your version. It doesn't <laughs> bother me. I'm not hung up on Unless you said something outrageously untrue. And by the way, I hear stuff about myself all the time that's been gilded beyond recognition. <laughs> you know, somebody actually accused me of bullying them at school, which is such a lie. Somebody went to me the other day, did you bully someone at school? I said, there is no way I bullied anyone at school. I said, whoever told you this? It's a, it's a damn liar. Sorry. <laughs> so no, that wasn't true. But you know, these things are, you know, as you know yourself, Urban myths are created out of dust. So, of course, yeah. Back to the song. Once you gave me that, once I saw you, I said to you, "What the books? What's the book called?" You said, "The boy sat by the window," and I was like, "Well, that just sounds like a Morrissey lyric." <laughs> you know, it's like the boy who sat by. It just, you know, then it starts to write itself. So, I would say that what I've learned this year is that songwriting is like grouting or bricklaying. If you have a natural talent for it, which I do, and I don't say that with any arrogance, it's something I've been doing for a long time, so I should be good at it. But I think this year I kind of reacquainted myself with not only um, the sort of craft of songwriting, but also working out, you know, what do you want to say? What is it you've got to say now? What do you want to sing about? So I've really been using a lot of kind of reference points like yourself, like Philip, like all the people I've known. I've been sort of throwing them into songs, you know. And so you gave me a perfect opportunity when you said I'm doing this book. And I thought, oh, I've got a piece of music. And then I <laughs> sat down and, you know, this is what I do. I sit down, listen to music over and over and over and over again. And it's a great advantage to have a title. Did it come fast? It did, really. Once I sort of worked out... Um, you know, because obviously songs start with the truth and then they become fantastical. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's like 
obviously, and there are things about you that are similar to things about me. So, yes, I was also accused of dreaming and looking out the window at school. So it was something <laughs> I totally connected with. The minute you said the boy was sat by the window, I was like, well, I was always looking out the window. And my reports were always, let's stay dreaming. If George applied himself, <laughs> he'd be a genius and all that sort of stuff. But I was yeah. busy looking out the window and drawing pictures of David Bowie and writing poetry, you know, and, and thinking about falling in love and all those things. So for me, it, it, you know, it's all been part of this thing that I've been through this year because I started off with this pandemic sort of a bit distracted, not knowing where to put my energies. And then I thought, actually, I've never had this much time off. What yeah. am I going to do with this time? And yeah. so that's really how it started. So, you know, and then, of course, you know, obviously, once I started to kind of, I read, you sent me a sort of synopsis of bits and pieces of your life, and I just nicked some bits, added some bits. I don't know if you ever went to Philip Sullivan's club and got turned away, but probably you could. <laughs> I got turned away from Master Clubs and I never went back, you know. I got kicked by him once. Well, there you go, you see. You know, that doesn't rhyme as well. Got kicked by Philip Sullivan, doesn't rhyme. So you are always, you know, so you've got the idea and then you've got the sort of structure of the music and then you can force lyrics onto a piece of music because music, I think, is a landscape for poetry. So yeah. really the music is a, a sort of, a, it's a plate with which you put your food on the plate. You know, it's about how you arrange it, what you season it with, you know, um, you know, and then you get into, once you sort of got the idea, then you get into this whole world of sort of what you call quality songwriting. And you go, right, I need a hook. I need to just find that one thing that sticks in people's heads. And, you know, you handed me on a plate, really. So that was the start. And, you know, it's, um, it really depends on what somebody, somebody sends me a piece of music. Usually a producer will give the file a name. So we'll say it's called this or it's called that. It'll, you know, I got one the other day from Paul Marston called Bring the Asteroid. And I thought, well, there's a title. <laughs> you know, Bring the Asteroid. And I just started writing it. And it's, I am annoying everyone at the moment because every time anyone says anything, I just turn it into a song. Do you write it down? Do you go around with a notebook? I, I sing a lot of stuff into the old iPhone. That's a great yeah. tool where I just go. But yeah, I think if you get a, a line, like a best example, I think, was I was talking to my manager, PK, if you months back and we were talking about relationships and talking about the rights and wrongs of a, of a relationship. And he said, you know, he said to me, well, what would you call unreasonable? And I thought, exactly. And that turned <laughs> into a song title. And then it turned into a book, you know, what would you call unreasonable? What would be problematic? Then I start, and then you start playing with sort of, you know, um, rhyming and, and, you know, and also when you sing something, sometimes a certain word will just evoke Resonate, such a yeah. feeling, you know, like, you know, foul queen on the door, turn me away. And back then, as you know, then there's that bit where and I we've all known them. about the um, falling in love with that parachute. I'm sure you have. I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're anything like me. It's that's so a couple of my exes, George. <laughs> I think it's, you know, but you, you start getting into this sort of metaphor world, you know, which is which you, you know, like when you're writing a book, you don't have the luxury. Well, you can still use metaphors and you can still be, I think you can jazz things up. I mean, I, probably think if I wrote a book now, if I wrote Take It Like a Man now, what would I write? Would I be the same person? I don't think I would. No. A lot of things I said about not. people I would never say. And you're going to have the same experience, let me tell you. From the start of writing it in lockdown, I did the same as you. I wanted to do something productive with the time that's handed on a plate to you. My opinions, if I go through the book, what I wrote early and now, things have changed and 
I'm constantly, even still, rewriting. You know, it's only about its sixth rewrite now. Careful of the rewrite, though, because there is a sort of real undercurrent of that, which is, if I let this go, I'm going to be judged. That's the thing. Yeah, about yeah, or or yeah. music. If I let this go, someone's going to comment. But it's different now. I don't think you'll get the sort of same abuse that you would have done 20, 30 years ago, because there mm. just isn't that anymore. And no you know, one cares. An opinion. <laughs> well, no, I think people do care. I think that... Not about me. <laughs> I think they do, because... You know, I think they do. I don't think you should say that, because I think, you know, I think, you know, you can't write a book if you don't think no one's going to care. So, absolutely, yeah. I don't agree with yeah. you. Sorry, I'm not, <laughs> not having that, that... <laughs> And also, I think it's also very British to kind of put yourself down and say, oh, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. Actually, yeah. it matters. It matters what you've been through. It matters what you're going to share with us. I think it's interesting. And, you know, what I will say about you, you know, you're a grafter, you get on with things. And that's kind of why I like, one of the reasons I like you, obviously I like you because I've known you for a thousand years and you're great and <laughs> mad and unpredictable and all those things, you know. But, you know, you do work, you know, you're not someone who sits around and, you know, sort of bemoans, you know, you might moan, but you don't tell <laughs> You know, and that's kind of very, you know, that's just how I was brought up. You know, you yeah, don't, yeah. I think our book, backgrounds are quite similar in many ways, and how I we this, were brought up. And I have this mad connection to Birmingham because, you know, my grandmother lived in Birmingham, so I was always there for my summer holidays. I used to come back and I always used to have a Birmingham accent. <laughs> my nan used to live next door to Martin Degville's mom. Oh. And I know, <laughs> how weird is that? In, in a really rough area oh, yeah, of Warsaw. I used to get these stories about Martin when I was about eight, you know, eight or nine. Oh, you should see the state of him. And now he's got a friend. And that was you, obviously, because my eldest sister saw you in Warsaw Market when I think I was only about seven or eight. She's a lot older than me. And years and years later, obviously, when you had the hit records and blah, 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 she always used to say, yeah, I saw him in Warsaw Market and he'd got stilettos on. In the middle of the day. <laughs> well, there was nothing else to do at that time. And you just had to kind of make the most of every day. And we used to get chased a lot. Up there was that hill. Oh, it's right. From the, from the train station up to Walsall Market, there was a big hill. Like it was like up running to the, the church at the top. Yeah. I actually stopped. I think I wore stilettos in that market because it was right next to the house. But as a rule, I wouldn't wear stilettos to the train station. But I've seen what Martin went through. And he was always kicking off those heels. I went in flat shoot. That was very sensible. <laughs> yeah, we, used to get, we used to get chased a lot. And, you know, you think about that and you think, why would I have done what I did, knowing that I probably would have got bashed up? But you, when you're 19, 20... You don't care. No, you just think, what do you mean? I can't dress up as a nun. Why are you bothered? I, I look beautiful. I kind of don't really understand why people are bothered now, really. I mean, but I, I don't know about you, but I think there's a point where... Obviously, when you're 19, of course, you want everyone's attention. I'm not saying I don't want attention now, but I think as you get older, your reasons for dressing up become just quite personal. Very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're not, totally. you're actually, I mean, I'm not a fan. You know, when you stand up somewhere and someone says, what are you wearing? And I just think, you want me to explain what I'm wearing? <laughs> <laughs> why, why am I wasting all this time getting ready? I mean... You know, I used to love the fact that Lee Bowery used to say to people, oh, I'll leave the explanations to you. And I think that's so true. It's like, well, if I've got a city, because when people ask you that, they normally mean how much is what you're wearing worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. like, did you make this yourself or is this from a, you know, thrift store? It's like, yeah. how much money have you spent on your look? And if I've, you get yeah. known for a look as well, you know, and I got known for sort of always wearing Vivian, people expect it. So towards the end of 
sort of my um, drag days, I was spending everything that I earned on just to go to work again, to earn the next bit, to go to work again. So it's kind of vicious cycle really but that's least, what i've always really at least you were perfectly dressed for tragedy though you know i was thinking like all, <laughs> i would say we're all clinging to a rock but at least some of us have made an effort you know yeah exactly very hall just as a mermaid you, clinging. you once said something to me that um that always resonates and i still think about it now doesn't matter how much it costs as long as you commit to your look Absolutely. And I think people that apologise, I mean, listen, I've had some shockers. I look back sometimes and think, what was I thinking? Why didn't, anyone <laughs> stop me from, why didn't someone stop me from leaving the house in leggings? <laughs> she hasn't got my legs for leggings. <laughs> but, you know, um, and also I've been, I've always been more of a, I've always, I, I like photographs. I'll be honest with you, I prefer the studio when I'm writing. I like to be in the studio, mm. going out and kind of flogging it and, you know, doing all that stuff, work in the room. Maybe when I was 19 was a lot easier and it was fun and, you know, you could just do things like walk into a lady's toilet and you'd be on the cover of the Daily Mail and it was all just yeah. a bit easy. <laughs> now it's different, you know, and I, as I say, I really, I feel like I've got much more involved in in, in what, why I'm doing what I'm doing and, and what's the purpose of it and where's it going. And Do you think you've you got know, more control over it as well? Because from what I can see now, no, having known you sort of in the 90s and everything and the team of people you had around you then, and the team of people you've got around you now, it seems as though you've got um, a much tighter team that are more in tune with your creative side and they, they get you more. Do you know I what I mean? I wish I could say that was true, but I think, it's not, I think it's not true. I think what it is is that I've kind of come to an understanding with myself about what I do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the old-fashioned way of making records and selling them and promoting them stopped for me in 1987. Yeah. When I went into Acid House and started DJing, I understood at that point that, you know, that old way of doing things was over. And for the last, since then, I've almost been harangued by the people around me to continue doing that stuff. And I've been saying all mm. the time, it doesn't work. It's a waste of my time. Stop telling me to do the same things. And it, it sort of culminated on me doing this tour in America where I took a 12-piece band. When I did This Is What I Do, yeah, band. It cost me money to do the tour. I didn't make any money, but I really wanted to make a statement about who I was and my commitment to what I'm doing. And I know that people appreciated the fact that I took this 12 piece band to America and just did this tour. And well, everyone said, "How God, that must cost." You've got like cost, trumpeters, saxophonists, everything. It was a Three synth backings. But then, if you don't enjoy yourself, it's this weird thing of like, well, you know, it's. I always say it's it's the battle between the gig and love. The gig mm -hmm. or love, that's your choice. Sell your soul <laughs> or find your voice. You know, and I think it just takes, listen, I mean, some of the wisdom that I've, you know what, this year I'm back into therapy big time. And, you know, some of the stuff I've learned, it's not that I haven't already learned it and I didn't know it 20 years ago, but there's some simplicities that you go. Why didn't I get that then? Why, did I, why do I have to be told this again? And I think one of the great things about this year, you know, I know not many people are saying it's been a great year, but I know people that have really enjoyed the isolation, enjoyed, mm. you know, sort of being able to focus on certain things that maybe, you know, when you're in the matrix, you can't necessarily focus on. So yeah. I appreciate the luxury of this time. Yeah. yeah. You know, even yourself, been... writing a book, you know, doing a podcast, you know, it's, you know, as I say, it's, uh, it's you grafting, and I think that's a good thing. And I'm always grafting. I put up a 
we made a video yesterday in 24 hours. I wanted to do it in less than 24 hours, but uh, Dean couldn't cope with the pressure. <laughs> and literally, he arrived at my house yesterday morning. I said, I've got this song. I put him in this shirt of mine because he used to be a salsa dancer. Yeah. And so I got him to salsa dance and, you know, I just filmed him salsa as me and then I just stuck my head on it. So I did the whole thing. Everyone keeps, oh, you look really skinny. I'm like, got a body double. <laughs> on that note, we look forward to hearing the 60 tracks, the rest of them. I've heard a couple and they're fantastic. And I'm very proud that um, the song that you've written for this series is going to be included in them so thanks for that George Cheers, the boy who sat by the window Been trying to work him out for years but there's so much to see out of the window I don't know why they stopped me here there must have been a reason I forget don't look inside That's my best advice Don't look inside But don't look down The boy who sat by the window With colorful thoughts flying through his head But it's not over yet Came to London, found a flat Smoked to join, wore a hat Wore my trousers back to front Went to Phillips Sons Club Fall Queen on the door Turned me away Went back the following Friday Got in Became notorious for falling in love with that parachute Are you crazy? I heard them say now all I can see is Vivian Westwood shaking her head. And Philip Salmon's got a Westwood bag on his head. He started everything. No, no. No one's trying to be funny. Holly Styron knows that I'm dyslexic. I never heard that word at school. I was just a troublemaker. Who's up? a bit of spoken word because words need to be spoken and when you heard
This podcast was produced and edited by Jackie O'Malley. Post-production is by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media Limited. Music by George O'Dowd and Luke Begley. Produced by Kevin Frost. Original artwork by David Hodge. Podcast artwork designed by Lee Dyer. This has been David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. Thank you.